We are going to be studying this afternoon Job chapters 4 and 5, the first speech of Eliphaz to Job. Uh, We're going to be looking at all of those two chapters, but I'll read just from chapter 4, verse 12, to the end of chapter 5. I think it's important to capture at least that much in our reading. So beginning at chapter 4, verse 12, Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it, in disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men. Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. And a spirit passed before my face, the hair on my body stood up, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance, a form was before my eyes. There was silence, then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die, even without wisdom. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and the snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. 
You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. Let's ask God's blessing. Our gracious God, Father, we give thanks for your word, for the wonderful things you reveal to us in the word, and also for the way that you have revealed it to us in the lives of men and in the application of that word to lives so that we can see it and understand it and know it in its application to us as well. Grant us understanding this afternoon and hear us when we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, what I want to do this afternoon is talk about three things in these two chapters of Job. First, I want to talk about the flow of the thought in it. And I think it's uh, very important that we understand that flow of thought. I think understanding the flow of the thought is actually the key to understanding this whole speech of Eliphaz. Secondly, we want to take a look at the theology of Eliphaz in this speech. And then finally, at the problem with this speech as Eliphaz gave it. In his commentary on Job, Francis Anderson divides this passage into seven parts and says, basically, that there's a kind of rough chiasm here in these two chapters. And I think that his division is helpful, so we're going to review that division quickly a moment. In chapter 4, verse 2, we have an introductory remark, and we have a closing remark in chapter 5, verse 27. So the beginning and end verses have these opening and closing remarks. In between those sections, we have then in 4, verses 3 to 5, an exhortation to Job. And the same happens again in chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. You see how the sections here are are very unequal, but the content of the sections is similar, at least in this regard, that they're both exhortations to Job. Then between those two sections, you have sections that describe God's dealings with men. In chapter 4, verses 6 to 11, and in chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. And finally, in the middle of the passage, you have the revelation that was made to Eliphaz when he talks about that spirit that passed before his face and gives the content of that revelation in verses 17 and following. So that's the the structure of the passage in in general, but uh, what we want to do is look at, briefly at the thought in each section, I think, and the flow of the thought also in these sections. I think that the flow of the thought is more important even than the uh, fact that this is 
constructed in a roughly chiastic manner. So in 4 verse 2, Eliphaz says to Job, I don't know if you're ready to listen, really, but I can't stop from speaking. In fact, no one could stop from speaking. After observing your circumstances and after hearing what you've just said, something has to be said in response. And it seems to have fallen on me to do it. If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? And then in verses 3 to 5, we have that first exhortation to Job. And it's really not directly expressed, I think, but it uh, is implied in his words here. And what Eliphaz says to Job basically is, uh, you have helped many in their troubles. You've been able to comfort them with the words of truth. You've been able to strengthen weak hands. You've upheld those whose, whose feet have been stumbling you have strengthened feeble knees. In other words, in, in suffering, you have been a man who has been there with people, helping them and advising them and giving them counsel in their troubles. But, he says, now it has come upon you and you're unable to take your own advice. Now it comes upon you and you are weary. It touches you and you are troubled and so the basic exhortation here of Eliphaz is you should take the advice that you were so ready to give to others who have been suffering and whom you have, and Eliphaz doesn't deny it, whom you have helped in their suffering. You've said the right things, you've done good work in, in helping them, now take that advice that you gave to others and apply it to yourself. I think that's the basic thrust of verses 3 to 5. But in verse 6, he, he moves on to a new thought that's really, I think, probably uh, extracting from Job's words to those who were troubled some of Job's advice and, and now taking some of that advice of Job and giving it back to him. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope, he says. And what he means by that is not, as some have said, that Eliphaz believes in a justification by works. It's not the point here at all. Rather, what Eliphaz is saying is, if you are a righteous man, and he doesn't express any doubt about that, but if you are a righteous man, then the fact that you are righteous should give you confidence in suffering, that you will not perish, that you will not be destroyed by this suffering. You should, you, this is the kind of thing you said to other righteous people who have suffered. Uh, why should you not have the confidence and the hope that you advised them to have in their suffering? It is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. And uh, what he means simply is that uh, same thing that comes across in many of the Psalms, for example, when David compares himself to his enemies, and he, uh, he talks about his righteousness as contrasted with his enemies and how his enemies have attacked him without cause, and he pleads with God because 
he says, I'm a righteous man. He's not pleading justification by works, but he's simply saying, by your grace, I am a righteous man. You have given me this gift of righteousness, and now I have confidence that you will uphold it and that you will deliver me in the troubles you have brought upon me. And this is the thought, then, that's expounded in verses 7 to 11. Why should David's, or Job's reverence be his confidence? Well, remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Does God really cause the righteous to perish? Are the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. God is angry with the wicked, and he judges them. And then in verses 10 and 11, he uses a figure of speech to emphasize this point. He's not talking about literal lines in verses 10 and 11, but he's talking about the wicked under the figure of a lion. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lion are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Lions are violent animals. They prey on other animals for their food. But uh, Eliphaz says, eventually, these lions die. Well, the same is going to be true of the wicked. And this is a very common figure in the uh, Old Testament scriptures, that people are compared to lions. In Psalm 7, verse 2, for example, David says, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Or in Psalm 10, verse 9, he lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. Or just one more passage, Nahum 2, verses 11 and 12, and uh, the prophecy of Nahum. The prophet is speaking against um, Nineveh. The whole prophecy is a prophecy against the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian Empire. And uh, the prophet says there, Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey, and his dens with flesh. And the implication in those words is, Nineveh has been destroyed by the judgment of God. The lions no longer prowl as they used to. So he's he's simply saying God uh, does not cause the righteous to perish. He does not cut off the upright. He judges the wicked. Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reach the same. Reap the same, excuse me. Now the, the difficulty, I think, begins in verse 12 of chapter 4, the section that we read together. It's very clear here that in this section of the chapter, really through the end of chapter 4, Eliphaz is uh, claiming special revelation. 
He talks about this vision he had seen. And he says this vision came at night. And he was very afraid when this vision began. All his bones shook. A spirit passed before his face. He couldn't discern its appearance, but there was a form, a a vague form of some sort before his eyes. And then he heard a voice speaking, and the words of that voice are found in verses 17 to 21, at least. So he's claiming special revelation. The difficulty here is, who is the spirit? Some commentators take the position that the spirit is the spirit of God himself. Uh, Frankly, that sounds somewhat unlikely to me because of the fact that Eliphaz claims to have seen the spirit. Who else ever claimed to see the spirit of God in the scriptures? The spirit of God is invisible. The spirit of God is self-effacing, if we may put it that way. The spirit of God does not talk about himself. He talks about Christ and about the Father, but he doesn't really talk about himself. That's what Jesus says about him, in fact. The Spirit does not, when he speaks to men, he speaks to them in visions and in dreams, and he speaks to them directly. He spoke to the prophets often in these ways, but I don't think you read anywhere that the Spirit actually showed himself in some kind of form to men. So others think that the Spirit may have been an angel. And... Again, I have questions about that. Because in the rest of the scriptures, when you read about revelations of God to men through the instrumentality of angels, you see one of two things, I think. First of all, you you may see the angel appearing in the form of a man, so that he's indistinguishable from a man, at least at first. So when Abraham first saw the angels on the plains of Mamre, he thought they were simply men. When Gideon met the man uh, who called him to his work, met the angel of the Lord who called him to his work, he had no idea at first that this was an angel. When Joshua saw the angel before talking or before attacking Jericho, he too thought this was simply a man. So over and over again, angels revealed themselves simply as men. On the other hand, when you look at other passages of scriptures, sometimes the angels revealed themselves in in great glory. And men were very afraid then when when, uh, angels revealed themselves in this way. Think of the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. The angels revealed themselves in light and glory, and they were afraid. Now Eliphaz is afraid here, but the whole setting is, is dark. It's in darkness that it happens. And he sees nothing very clearly. He sees a vaguely discernible form is all. So the question is, what is is happening here? And I don't know that I have an answer to that question. Is it possible that uh, Eliphaz was simply uh, making this up? in order to give conviction to his words? Or did he really have some kind of dream or vision that uh, was like this 
and this was really the Spirit of God or an angel? I, I, frankly, I, I'm not sure. But what strikes me about this is that this vision of, of uh, Eliphaz seems to be much more in line what we, with what we think of as the paranormal today or with Saul's vision of Samuel before the battle with the Philistines in which he was killed than with other visions of the prophets throughout the Old and New Testaments. But whatever the case may be, I think Eliphaz does speak truth in connection with it. So I think probably whatever explanation we give to this uh, vision, this spirit, has to be that it was some kind of revelation from God though a very unusual revelation from God. The voice said to him, then, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Now, if you look at the New International Version or the English Standard Version of that verse, you will see that they translate, can a mortal be righteous before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? They take out the comparison. Not can a mortal be more righteous than God, but can a mortal be righteous before God? And I do not think that's correct. I think we should stick with this translation that we have here, in which many of the other translations have as well. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? What Eliphaz is asking Job is, do you think a man can be more righteous than God? And then he, uh, that's really a rhetorical question, of course. The answer to it is obvious. And he emphasizes the answer to the question in the verses that follow. And he emphasizes this by making a comparison between men and angels. And he says, men uh, or angels are very powerful and glorious beings, but men are very frail and earthly beings. uh, They dwell in houses of clay. Their foundation is in the dust. They are crushed before a moth. Their, Their life is very fragile and easily broken. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. So angels are much less than, or men are much less than angels in their excellence, verse 21, and in their wisdom. But, in verse 18, God put no trust in his servants and he charged his angels with error. And I think what Eliphaz is referring to there probably is Satan's fall and the fall of those angels who went with Satan. And that's a demonstration that the angels are inferior to God. And so he says, if man is inferior to the angels, do you think really that a mortal can be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? So he's making the point that man, frail man, cannot be more righteous than God. Um, that's an important point then for what follows in chapter 5. I think in chapter 5, verse 1, Eliphaz begins to build on this notion. 
And he says to Job, call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? And what he's saying to Job is, try calling to men or to angels, those men and angels I've just been talking about, and will you find help in any one of them? Is there anyone among men who will answer you? To which of the angels are you going to turn? And and what he's doing, I think, is anticipating that Job is going to try to justify himself. As we often do in our sufferings or in the problems of life that we face or in our words or whatever, we go to our friends and we talk to our friends about what we uh, have done or what we have said, and we look to our friends to talk to us and to encourage us and to say, yes, you did the right thing. And even we look for words of praise from them. And though Job has not yet tried to justify himself, Eliphaz is anticipating that he might do this because it's very common among men to do this. And he's saying to him fundamentally, don't. He's trying to forestall this kind of thing from Job. This calling upon Job. And this is why then he talks about men and angels beforehand. He, he says God charged his angels with error. And a man is more frail than the angels. He's broken in pieces from morning till evening. If you are going to try to justify yourself to men, or if you're going to look for your justification from men, or if you're going to look for help from men in this suffering, you're going to fail. You're, you're, you're going to find that men are not going to be of any help to you. For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. That is, if there's anyone who's foolish enough to think that he can give you the help that you need, that he can justify you, he's a fool and a simple one. And wrath will kill him, and envy slay him. It's not going to work. I've seen the foolish, he says, taking root. But suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. And I think what he means there is, even I could bring harm on that foolish man. Not just God can bring harm on him, but I could curse him and cause him harm in some way. And if I can cause him harm, why should you trust him? Why should you look to him for your justification and your help? His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no deliverer because the hungry eat up his harvest, take it even from among the thorns and the snare snatches their substance. So his sons are crushed in the gate. Uh, That is, his sons come into judgment. That's what the idea of the gate is. His sons come into judgment and they can't justify even themselves. They're crushed. In the judgment, how are they going to help you? There is no deliverer for them. How can they then be a deliverer for you? And as far as their harvest is concerned, the hungry take it away. They break through the thorn hedges that surround your fields, taking it even from the thorns. And they snatch away their substance. And they're left with nothing, these fools and these simple ones. So he says, don't put your trust in them. 
Don't put your trust in angels. Don't put your trust in men. And understand that they're in the same circumstances as you, verses 6 and 7. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This is part of the lot of men. It's not just you who suffer, but every man suffers. Every man has this kind of problem that you have. Maybe not to the same degree, but every man is born to trouble as certainly as the sparks fly upward. So he's basically saying to Job, don't seek your help from man. And then in verse 8, he goes on to the next step. But as for me, I would seek God. See what he's doing here? He says, man is weak. There's no help for you in them. In fact, if you rely on them, you will find that they are, are broken reeds. And they're, they're, anyone who thinks he can help is a fool and a simple one and will suffer in the same kind of way that you have suffered. Men are born to trouble. They're all weak. They're all subject to a coming ultimately to the dust. So seek God. As for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. Why? Because God is not like men. He does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. These are examples of his work. Look around you in creation and see what mighty things God does. And consider this also then, verses 11 and following, that he sets on high those who are lowly. Not only is he able to do, to give you the help you need because of his might, but consider the fact that he is the one who sets the lowly on high and who lifts the mourning to safety. And again at the end of verses of that section, verses 15 and 16, he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hands, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. God does these things for the poor, the meek, the lowly, the humble, the afflicted, the troubled, the widows and orphans. All that language that you find throughout the Psalms and in the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. And he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. In other words, God sets the needy on high and he brings the wicked low. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. So that's the next thing. He's talking about the way God deals with men and he said this is what God does and you should consider this. I would seek God, he says to Job. And then he goes to the next step and he says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Here's his exhortation to Job, the direct exhortation to Job. Do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. He's the one who can help. He's the one who has helped the poor and needy in the past. Now 
Do not despise his chastening. Why? Because he who bruises is also the one who binds up. Notice how he refers to the sovereignty of God in Job's suffering. He bruises, but he also binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. And then he talks about how God delivers, uh, or will deliver Job, if Job does not despise his chastening. He shall deliver you in six troubles, yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you, and so on. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. That's perhaps a little bit ironic in light of what his, Job's friends keep on saying to him later, scourging him with their tongues. But nevertheless, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. And, and so on. And then this is all these promises that come to the poor. But in verse 23, we have a promise, I think, that may be a little bit obscure. You shall have a covenant with the stones of the field. Perhaps we can say a word about that. Some have suggested that what this means is that uh, the stones in the field will not interfere with Job's agricultural labors. labors. He, we know he was a farmer, that he had great flocks and herds and so on. And So it's possible that what Eliphaz is saying here is simply the f- stones in the field will not interfere with the growing of your crops and with the pasturage of your flocks and your herds. But... Francis Anderson, in his commentary, suggests another interpretation. You can take that word stones here in verse 23, and you can change the vowel pointing on the Hebrew letters. Remember, the vowel pointing is not in the original. And you can make it say, the sons of the field instead. You shall have a covenant with the sons of the field. And that would be simply parallel then with the beasts of the field in the last part of the verse. So the beasts of the field will not interfere. They won't attack your animals. They won't cause you all kinds of trouble and grief. So he's saying to Job then, ultimately, submit yourself to the chastening of the Lord. And the Lord then will do all these things for you. He will deliver you In six troubles, yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. And then he concludes, finally, in verse 27, with his closing remark, saying, I've searched this out, but I'm not the only one who've searched this out. Others have too. Behold, this we have searched out. It's true. I'm not the only one who would say these kinds of things to you. There are many others who would say the same kinds of things to you. Hear it and know for yourself. Listen to me. I'm giving you true and sound advice here about this, these circumstances in which you find yourself. So when you look at the theology then, of this line of argumentation that Eliphaz uses, I think you find that it's basically sound theology that you find here. I don't think there's anything here in all that Eliphaz says that you cannot find in other scriptural passages 
where it's very clear that this is the word of God himself, that this is what God teaches. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 8, when Eliphaz says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, you can point not only to Psalm 1, for example, where the psalmist talks about the wicked being blown away like the chaff of the wind and says that the way of the wicked will perish in the last part. Or Psalm 37, which talks about the destruction that comes on the wicked. But there are even scripture passages that use language exactly like this language that Eliphaz is using. Turn, for example, to Hosea chapter 10, verse 13. Hosea 10, verse 13. Hosea says to Israel there, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. Very same language that Eliphaz used to Job. And in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, the Apostle Paul also uses this kind of language. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 The Apostle Paul says there, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So that point of Eliphaz's theology is a legitimate point. Those who plow iniquity reap the same. Chapter 4, verse 9. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. This is what Eliphaz says about the wicked. And again, you can find uh, the same kind of scriptural language. David uses this language in 2 Samuel 22, verses 16 to 18, when he talks about God's judgment on his wicked enemies. 2 Samuel 22, verses 16 to 18, David says this, Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. God judges the wicked. In chapter 4, verse 17, when he says men cannot be more righteous than God, that's an obvious truth. Who could find fault with such a statement? And in fact, isn't that even the point that God himself made to Job? Indirectly, at least, when he spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. He said, you want to contend with me, Job? Understand who I am. And then Job says what? I am vile. I am vile. He has learned from the revelation of God to him that he is not more righteous than God. What Eliphaz is doing, you see, is he's setting this whole uh, thing about Job's suffering in the context of judgment, of of a legal case, really. And he's saying to Job, would you like to enter into judgment with God, or would you like someone on earth or even in heaven to enter into judgment with God for you? Well, who are you dealing with? Who is more righteous than God? Who can come to a better conclusion, a more righteous conclusion of your case, if you present it to him, than God himself? 
when he says in uh, chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, that judgment comes on the fool, go to the book of Proverbs and look up the word fool and see how often in the book of Proverbs Solomon talks about judgment coming on the fool. When he says in verse 8 of chapter 5 about himself, I would seek God, and implies that this is what Job uh, should do, who could give better advice than that? Seek God. I would seek God, he says. Maybe he exaggerates his own abilities here, his own power, but it's good advice for Job. Seek God. In verses 10 to 16, when Eliphaz talks about how God uh, sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety and he frustrates the devices of the crafty, Psalm 10 as well as many other passages in Scripture, talk about that, that sort of thing too. Psalm 10, verses 13 and 14. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. When he says in verse 17, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, Solomon says those very same words in Proverbs chapter 3. And the apostle quotes Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12 and adds to his words and says if God chastens you, then you're a son and not illegitimate. Not only does uh, Eliphaz express truth here, stuff that you can find in the rest of the scriptures, but it's very beautifully put. It's a very powerful expression here of that theology. He bruises, but he binds up. Yes, he is the one who has bruised you, but he will bind up your wounds if you do not despise his chastening. He'll deliver you from troubles. This, it's perfectly sound theology. And besides that, a profound truth that the God who bruises is also the God who binds up. That the God who wounds is also the God who makes whole. And when he says in verses 19 to 26 to Job, the righteous will prosper. Again, you can find this all over the scriptures. In Proverbs, in Psalm 37, and many other places as well. So when we look at this theology of Eliphaz, I don't think we see really any problem with the theology. And in another commentary I have on Job, the commentator says about this, there, there is really no problem with Eliphaz's theology as expressed. He says the problem is that Eliphaz is missing important pieces here. But I'm not so sure that even that is true. I'm not really sure that we can even say that about what Eliphaz says here. I think, though, that there is a problem, and here we get to our final point, there is a problem with Eliphaz's speech here. I think he shows a lack of compassion 
That's certainly one thing that is true here. And that comes across, especially in some of the things he says in chapter 5. Look at verse 4, for example. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Job's sons had just been crushed by a whirlwind that blew down their house. At the very least, I think, Job's response to that must have been, does he think that I have sinned? That I'm the fool here? That he mentions in verse 2, wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one? And that that's why my sons have been crushed? Verse 5, he could say the same thing. The hungry eat up his harvest. Well, these raiders had come and stolen all Job's uh, cattle and destroyed all his crops or taken them away. This had happened to Job. And again, Job's response could be, does he think then that I'm a fool and a simple one? That I'm filled with wrath and envy? Job has submitted himself to the chastening hand of the Lord and saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He hasn't acted like a fool. Again, in verse 24, Eliphaz says, You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. What if Job had visited his tent and his dwelling just now? He would not have found much there except ruin. Is that the kind of uh, words then you want to speak to someone who has been afflicted as Job has been afflicted? And finally in verse 26, you shall come to the grave at a full age. You'll die old, he says. Well, Job had just said, I want to die. And here Eliphaz is promising him long life, which Job has no interest in at all. He doesn't want long life. He longs for death. But Eliphaz doesn't accuse Job directly of sin here. Job may well have asked himself that question, does he think I'm a fool? Does he think I have sinned? But there's no, especially in light of the way we've seen the flow of thought here, there's no accusation of sin here on Eliphaz's part. At most, what he has done is he has left open the possibility that this suffering has come on Job because of his sin. But on the other hand, he's also left open the possibility that Job is righteous. In fact, he said in the early part of chapter 4, your words have, have, have upheld him who was stumbling. He talks about Job's righteousness. And he says to him, is not your reverence, your confidence, that is your fear of God, is, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. So he doesn't deny that Job is righteous. He just leaves open, I think, the possibility that Job has sinned. And perhaps that was also somewhat uh, unsympathetic on Eliphaz's part. He knew Job's reputation. He knew what Job had done. None of Job's friends 
can accuse him of any specific sin. They, they enter into a lot of conjecture later on. But none of them knows of any specific sins in his life. So maybe too that shows a lack of compassion. And we are supposed to weep with those who weep. And I don't think we see Eliphaz here weeping with Job. But the advice that Eliphaz gave to Job, I think, was sound advice. And the things he said to Job were true things. Expressed somewhat unsympathetically, somewhat harshly, especially in the circumstances, but nevertheless true things. And even things that Job probably needed to hear. The basic piece of advice he gives to Job is, Seek God and do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. It's good advice for any sufferer, including ourselves. May God bless us with his words.